And while even though this is a historical story, this is about Solomon and his first bride, there are parallels that are very interesting. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So, Song of Solomon, or maybe in your Bible as the Song of Songs, it's got two different names, um, but it is written by Solomon. You'll see his name throughout the book. It is a short book, eight chapters. There is a lot of stuff that goes into this book. There's a few different ideas about what it is, but we know Solomon wrote it. It's very likely he wrote it very early on in his reign, since the scholarly thought about who the characters are in this book are Solomon and his first wife, which would have been very early in his reign. So Solomon reigned between 971 and 931 BC as he reigned for 40 years over Israel, so likely closer to 971 that this book was written. And it is poetic. It's a poem, really, about the marriage with Solomon's first wife. Who is that? We have no idea. Just to give you the short answer, a little bit longer answer is there's some ideas about who this might be. Um, We know that she is from Shunem because she's called the Shulamite, which is what uh, someone from Shunem would have been called. And there's a couple of ideas about who this woman might be. Uh, She might be a daughter of Pharaoh who resided in Shunem. Uh, The more I guess realistic idea would be that this might be the the Shulamite girl, uh, Abishag, who cared for David at the end of his life and kept him warm, but never had relations with him. This is the same woman who other sons of David wanted to take for themselves to show that they were the next in line in charge, but this might be actually who who it is. Now, it also might not be. We don't know, but that's a good guess. Shunem is a town in northern Israel in the lower Galilee region where a lot of the disciples were from um, in that area, in the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Armageddon, if you've heard it that way, in the Jezreel Valley. Um, And those are really the two places that, that this takes place, Jerusalem, and Shunem, because that's where the two characters are from, Solomon 
in Jerusalem, reigning in the palace, and the Shulamite girl who could be uh, Abishag in Shunem. This book covers about one to two years of life. There's really three pieces of this book and how it's broken up. The first uh, chapters, one through three, verse five, is really the beginning, the courtship or engagement time of Solomon and the Shulamite woman. The actual ceremony uh, takes place between chapters 3 and chapters 5, verse 1, uh, and then from, cha from five, chapter 5, verse 2, uh, on to the rest of the book and the ending in chapter 8 is really the, the marriage. And a lot of it is actually conflict resolution within their marriage. Now, those are the details of the book. Here are some of the ideas behind it. Now, some, and even in ancient Israel times, some of the rabbis thought that this was a book that was an allegory or a metaphor. Uh, and some considered it a historical book that also painted a metaphor. Some thought it was not historical, but just a metaphor of Israel's love for God and that that was what the meaning of the poem was. Some in the church today take that same picture, and they believe that it's really a metaphor for Christ's love for the church, and it's really one large prophecy about Christ and his bride. Um, and then the more common approach, or at least I think it's more common, it's definitely the one that I take, is that it's really just meant to be at face value, the story of Solomon and his first bride. And while there might be principles that you can pull out of it, um, really this story was meant to portray that uh, courtship, marriage, and the wedding night and all of that with Solomon and his first bride. It really is about marriage and healthy marriage, uh, which is also kind of unfortunate because this is about Solomon who after his first wife ended up with 699 more wives and 300 concubines. And what was beautiful and is in scripture got destroyed by Solomon later in his life as he tried to do political deals and ended up giving his heart to so many. And you'll even see a little bit about why that's sad throughout this book. So without further ado, let's get into the Song of Solomon. Uh, and we're, we're not going to touch every verse, but we're going to go through a significant portion of the book um, to cover what this is really about. So chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So there you go, right there in the first verse. We know who wrote it, and we know what this is. Scripture tells us that Solomon wrote a lot of music. He wrote over a thousand songs, but this is apparently the height of his musical career. This is who he, uh, what he's best known for. This is the one that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, and ends up as scripture. This is the song of songs. If you remember what we talked about in Hebrew poetry, that idea of repetition really building on this, saying something is the something of something really heightens its value. This is the song of songs. And so it starts out with the Shulamite woman and her perspective. 
in verse 2, we get her perspective. It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. And so this is the Shulamite woman looking at Solomon. Her attraction for him is evident. She's attracted to his who he is, how he smells. Everything about him just draws her to him. And she also recognizes that this man must be chased after by all the women. She is just looking at him in affection. But she also has a desire for Solomon to initiate the relationship. She doesn't want to make the first move. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She wants him to move first. That's the first principle in here is that in this story, her desire might be for Solomon, but she waits for him and desires for him to make the first move. And she has this idea, and this is even expounded on in the next few verses, that the daughters of Jerusalem, the other women in Jerusalem, or that would surround this man that she's attracted to, must also want him. And she's wondering, is what I want reciprocated? Or is he just in a cloud of affection around him because of how she sees him? And then she looks at herself and she responds to her own self-conscious thoughts in verse 5, where she says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark. Because the sun has tanned me, my mother's sons were angry with me, they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And what she's really saying is, at this time, it's now modern day, they're tanning booths and spray tans and looking dark is an appealing thing. But back then that was not the case. It actually showed that you were someone who spent your time outside working. It put you in a class that was lower because you were outside working in the fields rather than in the halls and palaces where your skin would have remained fair. So she is self-conscious about how she looks and she thinks, I might be pretty, but look past the bare skin because what you see there, I'm more than that, but she's self-conscious about who she is and she's looking to be validated. Then she says to Solomon in here, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And so she's confused because she sees this guy in the vineyard who she's attracted to and wants him to make the first move. And she says, where do you feed your flock? She's looking at him as though he's a shepherd. So potentially maybe Solomon is disguised because he's out in public and he doesn't want to be recognized. And she's looking at this guy who she thinks is just a simple shepherd. And she wants him to make the first move. And she also wants to know who he is. Where do you feed your flock? Where you make it rest at noon? 
She said, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know beyond this mystery, beyond subtraction, who you are. But she also wants to remain pure. She says, why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companion? She's basically saying, I will not be like the prostitutes who throw themselves at the men. Um, I'm not going to be like them. I want to be pure. I want to hold myself in purity and be chaste. And so that's this tension that's building. We pick up in verse 9. And it says, I have compared you, my love. This is Solomon speaking now as he is attracted to the Shulamite woman. He says, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. So Solomon's response to this lovely woman is, you look like a horse. And you have nice jewelry. But in reality, what he's saying is that it sounds like that if you're reading it at face value. But understanding the poetic nature of this and who Solomon is and what chariots represent, he feels fulfilled. He might even feel more powerful in her presence because she makes him feel like more of a man. Because that's what chariots did for a king. And one of Solomon's favorite hobbies was horses and vineyards. He owned lots of them. And he's basically saying, you are my most prized. You're better than all of the things that I put in my hobbies that I love. And then he's also noticing and make in response to her concern about how her skin looks to her position, he says, your neck is filled with chains of gold. Like, I'm going to take you out of that. Don't worry about that because he loves her. Now, she says, while the king is at his table, in verse 12, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. Beloved, My beloved to me is like a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Now, that's a lot of words and a lot of ways to basically say she sees Solomon as unique among men. She sees him as uniquely beautiful, different, altogether set apart from everyone else that she's ever met. It says, behold, you are, Solomon speaking, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. So after he calls your horse face, he says, you look like a bird. Just kidding. What he really says is that he treasures her above his most possessions in the horse thing. And now with dove's eyes, what he's really saying is that doves are interesting and that they can't focus on more than one thing at a time. What he's really saying is my eyes exist for you. And by saying you have dove eyes, I can tell that your eyes are only for me. And that makes Solomon love her even more. She responds, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fur. And she's just recognizing that she loves him. Lots of compliments and stuff early on in the relationship during the courtship period. They're 
just talking about how much they treasure each other, how much they're attracted to each other, how much they can't wait to be with each other. And as we pick up in chapter 2, we'll start in verse 4. He says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Now remember her self-conscious behavior and what she thought. And now what Solomon is doing is making his love for her public. He brought her into the banquet house, and she says, his banner over me was love. Her understanding of what he did for her by making his love for her public and declaring it in the nation is that she felt loved by knowing he wasn't ashamed of her because he made everything public. And verse 7 says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, <clears throat> by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Now, as this back and forth has gone on about their excitement and attraction to each other, this moment is high wisdom. By the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What it's basically saying is don't rush. Gazelles and does are known for their speed. Don't be like that. Don't stir this up. Don't go too far. Don't rush. Wait for love to blossom. <clears throat> in verse 14, it says, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rocks. This is the Shulamite woman talking to Solomon. Or, I'm sorry, Solomon talking to the Shulamite woman. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. And your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And now what's being said here is you're hidden. You're away from me. I want to know all of you. And when a dove is in the cleft of a rock, you can't be brutal. You can't be aggressive. You can't approach too quickly. You're saying, I will be tender and gentle and wait for you to come out. But I want to see and know all of you. And then it says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, right after this moment about talking about how she's hidden away and she seems secretive and he wants to wait and pull out all that she is, to know her completely, and he's willing to do it gently, right after that is this little moment about the foxes, meaning he wants to also identify all of the problems. Foxes are things that cause problems with shepherds and grapes and fields. He says, I want to identify these so that we can deal with the problems before our marriage. Actually deal with stuff before you commit so that your commitment isn't in shock when you find out more later. He wants to love all of her, including her problems, and he wants her to know that. Now, as we pick up in verse three or in chapter three, we start moving towards the wedding. Now, this is we have seen thus far what has been the courtship and the desire to know each other and the desire to deal with any problems before they enter into marriage. And they're doing things right; they're not rushing into love. But now it's time for the wedding to begin. And the procession starts in verse 6 of chapter 3. It says, Who 
is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the merchants fragrant powders behold it is solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of israel they all hold swords being expert in war every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear of the night and so the Shulamite woman is there waiting for her bridegroom to come and she sees him coming and she recognizes him and she looks out at him. The wedding procession is on the way and she's seeing all of the splendor of Solomon. And she continues in this in verse nine. Oh, the wood of Lebanon, Solomon, the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its supports of gold, its seat of purple, the interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, that the day of the gladness of his heart. And what she is doing here is acknowledging the responsibilities that Solomon carries. It's not just that, well, he's wealthy, look at all this gold. What she's actually saying is, look how important he is. And she's actually submitting to the fact that he has responsibilities other than her. And this is difficult, but boy, does she respect him. Which in marriage counseling, when I had to take classes for counseling and ministry, that's one of the things you really learn and understand is that in marriage or in a committed relationship, men desire respect. And women tend to desire adoration. If you can show respect for a man in his position, uh, he's bound to feel love. And she's already showing this, recognizing all of the weight on his shoulders because of how important he is. She respects him. Now the wedding night begins in chapter four. So if you blush, or if I do, don't laugh. But verse chapter four, behold, you are fair, my love. This is the beginning of the wedding night. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. I only see you. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Now, poetic flattery back then sounds really weird today. I would never call my wife a shorn sheep. It doesn't make sense to us. But imagine the beauty of understanding this in a world where shepherds exist everywhere and that is a consistent form of the economy she understood exactly what she what he was saying he's saying he only has eyes for you but your teeth are white and also every single one of them has a pair he's talking about her beauty and the symmetry in her face and smile and he can't take her eyes off of her face your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Now, a pomegranate, particularly back in ancient times, was known as an aphrodisiac. This is like he is pointing out his 
is attraction to her in a very sexual way at this point and as the wedding night is continuing and says, your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. And then in verse six, until day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And so this point, the point here is, even in their very first interaction, sexually, Solomon is taking his time. He is loving his bride slowly and taking his time with her. He is, as you see in verse 5, he starts to undress her after all of the compliments and things that he has shown on her and pointed out to her how much he only has eyes for her. He starts to undress her and take his time. And he says, until day breaks, he's going to take the whole night. Now, a uh, little awkward, but this is what uh, Pastor Skip Heitzig says about this area of Scripture, which I think is a, a unique set of wisdom that's also a little funny. He puts it this way. It says, men are microwaves and women are crockpots. In that, men often are very quick and like to get, get on with it. But women would like to be turned on and have their time taken. Note that Solomon puts aside his desires to take his time for his bride and care for her needs and woo her slowly on the wedding night. Now we'll pick up in verse 12 as the wedding night continues. It says, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And what he's saying is that she has saved herself for him. She has been shut up and a fountain sealed, a garden enclosed. She has been chased. She is a virgin. She has saved herself for marriage specifically for Solomon. And this is God's ultimate plan. This is the, the ideal. Now, it's not that there's not forgiveness or mercy and grace that can be found if that ship has sailed, but this is the ideal, and it is highlighted here. And even after this wedding night has, on, has ensued, how thankful Solomon is that this unique, special piece of their relationship was saved just for them. Now, again, fast forward years, how sad it is when he, at one point he only had eyes for her and she only had eyes for him, that he really let things go later on in his life. Which, since our last book was Ecclesiastes last week, how important even now, knowing that Solomon's conclusion is to fear God and keep his commandments how much he might actually be upset with how far he let things go. And now we pick up in, in chapter 5. It said, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk wine with my milk. Ultimately, he's saying he is satisfied. The wedding night has come to completion. It is the next morning. And he is thrilled with the experience. It says, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Satisfaction in marital relations. That is what that is about. You should find satisfaction in the person you're married with. Um, 
not just relationally, but also sexually. You should be attracted to them and find satisfaction with them. But the wedding night's over. The marriage has now begun. And some time has passed, and here comes the first argument. Right there in verse 2. I sleep, but my heart is awake. This is the Shulamite. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect love. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drips of the night. So Solomon comes in, bursts in, apparently as in, is expecting more of the same and more of the same satisfaction. Uh, but there's something between them. And she starts giving the excuses. The, uh, I have a headache, right? This is where she says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? If there is anything in the world that's easy, it's putting a robe on. But she is not in the mood. Something is going on. She says, I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? Really? You wash them again. That's what you do. Not that difficult. But the point here is that love doesn't bloom in conflict. When something is the matter, fix what's the matter. Love happens in restoration, not in conflict. It says, I arose for my beloved. Oh, I'm sorry. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. So in this conflict, Solomon knew what he wanted. She wanted to resolve the conflict beforehand. He starts to walk away, and she wants to keep him there, and she's willing to even not resolve the conflict. She just yearns for him, but he walks away too soon. He walks away angry, and now the conflict goes on for a long time. Here's the deal. In marriage, there's conflict. If you love someone and you're passionate about someone, you will butt heads. <laughs> uh, but he walks away, and now this conflict drags on. In fact, the conflict drags on through chapter 6. So out of eight chapters of marriage, talking about marriage, two out of eight is about conflict. 25% of this book, even though everything we've read up to this point is kind of all happy and sunshine and attraction and enjoyment and satisfaction, 25% of this book is about conflict, and that should tell you something about God's plan for marriage. You should experience conflict, and you should fight for each other and to restore. God fought for you to restore you on the cross. Restoration is where love is found. Now she says, my heart lapped up when I... When he spoke, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. He's gone. He walked out. Verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I am love sick. Now she's looking for help to find him. Because you can't resolve conflict if one of you isn't there. We'll pick up in chapter 6, verse 3. He says, I am my beloved. And my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Now she's saying, the, this is the conflict resolution. 
I'm yours. You should love me. I am my beloved. My beloved is mine. Here is where he comes to get satisfied. I am his. And that brings the resolution. And we pick up in chapter 7. It says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curved the curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skilled workman. In verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Now, why is this important? As resolution happens, Solomon makes her know that this fight is over by restoring the type of language by talking to her as he used to talk to her, making her feel beautiful and loved. And so remember a particularly romantic occasion where your wife or your loved one felt loved. Repeat that or show some form of remembering that. Talk to them in the same way. Treat them the same way. Show them that the conflict is over, it's resolved, and that you love them as you always have. Now we'll get towards the conclusion here in chapter 8 and pick up in verse 6. It says, set me as a seal upon your heart. This is Shulamite woman talking to Solomon. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement Flame. So we get a sense right there in verse 6 of chapter 8 what the fight might have been about. Well, Solomon, she sees as a, beautiful, a uniquely beautiful man. She saw him as unique when, he, when she thought he was just a shepherd. Then she finds out he's the king, and all of the women swoon for him, and she's a little bit jealous. But his eyes are only for her. And the conflict has been resolved. It says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. And so what's being here, being said here, really, is that the love of your spouse should be your most valued possession. And Upon this resolution and this resolved conflict, that is the case. She now knows that Solomon's love for her is his most prized possession, even though he owns everything. Her love is the thing he treasures most. I'll pick up in verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me, you, O Solomon. You have a thousand, and to those who tend its fruit, two hundred. And she's saying, look at all that you have. Look at all that you have to offer, Solomon. After all of this, you're the king. You have all of these vineyards and all of this wealth. Here's what I have, me. That's it. That's what I have to offer you. I don't have all of the possessions that you have. What I have to offer you is me, and you can have it all of it. I'm committed to you. 
So you who dwell in the gardens, the companions linens for your voice, let me hear it. The companions listen for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. In which he says, my love is for you. You can have all of me. All I want for you to do is when your responsibilities are over, at the end of the day, come home to me and come quickly because I want to see you. Because love is like that. And while even though this is a historical story, this is about Solomon and his first bride, there are parallels that are very interesting. And the story basically goes like this. A young woman who's basically the Cinderella of her family. Her mother's sons make her work the vineyards for them. Because of that, she's taken advantage of by her family and gets a tan that she's self-conscious about because she thinks it makes her look like a peasant. And she's afraid that she won't be seen as beautiful because of how she looks on the outside. But then a shepherd wanders into the vineyard and they take note of each other. She's interested in him, wants him to make the first move. He notices her and he does make the first move. But that shepherd reveals himself as king and the engagement period begins. And we can't wait for the shepherd to return as the king to betroth his bride. And so the end of Revelation states, come Lord quickly, much like the Shulamite woman can't wait for Solomon to come home. So yeah, there is a parallel and it does seem to point to Jesus, even though this is, yes, just a historical story of Solomon and his bride. But boy, I can't wait for that shepherd to come back as king and for the wedding, the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb to begin. Come, Lord, quickly. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the beauty of marriage, for conflict resolution, for attraction and love and desire and passion. Uh, thank you for the wisdom in this book and how we should speak kindly to one another, how we should show our love for one, each other, one another, respect and care. And when it's time to go home quickly because the love of our spouse is the thing we treasure most. Thank you for that gift here on earth. Thank you for designing marriage and the pleasures inside of it. Help us to enjoy it and to remember that it is a gift from you. And God, as we look forward, we also pray that you come quickly and we can't wait for the wedding supper of the Lamb. God, we love you, and we look forward to your return. In Jesus' name, amen.